Funding for Egeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We begin the uh, third part of the Tanya Tanya is divided into three parts. First, Alter Rebbe published the first two parts of Tanya, and then he added a third part, and his sons, after his passing, added the fourth part of the Tanya. Alter Rebbe is known as the master of the code of Jewish law, as well as the master of the Tanya. And the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe writes, that the four parts of the Tanya correspond to the four parts of the Code of Jewish Law. The first part is the way of life, Orachayim, and that corresponds to the first part of Tanya, which discusses how a Jew could develop a love for Hashem, a sense of awe of Hashem, to lead a Jewish life, how a Jew can lead a Jewish life with heart, with soul, passion, this is the first part of the Tanya. The second part of the Tanya corresponds to Yoyeradeya, which literally means to teach us knowledge, to make distinctions between what's right and what's not right, what's, and what's permitted, what's not permitted. And this corresponds to the second part of the Tanya, which is the gateway of unity and faith, because it teaches us the knowledge, Yoyeradeya teaches us knowledge and understanding to understand the deeper truth that there's no other reality besides Hashem. And to understand it logically and to internalize this idea, our whole substance is godliness, and therefore you understand what is permitted, why something is permitted, and why something is not permitted. Anything that's connected to godliness is permitted, anything that's not connected to godliness is prohibited. The third part, Evan Ha'ezer, which deals with the laws of marriage, of relationship. This corresponds to Teshuvah, the Geras HaTshuvah, the letter of Teshuvah. And the fourth part of the Tanya, which is the letters, the letters of the Alter Rebbe, which deal mostly with practical, to give tzedakah, to help out the Jews living in Israel, and the advantages of giving tzedakah, especially in Israel. That's what the children added, and that's what's called Igeres, HaKodesh, the letters, and that corresponds to the fourth part, which is Chesh and Mishpat, the laws of money, practical, business, finance. Now, why... Does the third part of Tanya, which is all about teshuva, why does that correspond to relationship, to marriage? Teshuva means that there's a problem. And you need a healing. Why would marriage be associated with teshuva? Marriage, <laughs> you always apologize. <laughs> marriage is... Is marriage a solution to a problem? 
So why is teshuva? Teshuva means you messed up, you blew it. And you have to do teshuva. Why are we associating marriage with teshuva? Now it's interesting, in the Torah, actually in the Talmud we find the tractates, the two tractates of marriage and divorce, Kiddushin and Gitin, which do you think comes first in the Talmud? Divorce. Divorce. First comes the tractate of divorce, and then comes the tractate of marriage. <laughs> Where's the logic? Why? How can you have divorce before you have marriage? And you go back to the Torah, where we learn the laws of marriage. So the Torah says that if a person divorces his wife, and Vaholcha, she left, he divorced her, and then Vahoyisalishach, and then she remarried. So we learn a lot of the laws of marriage, we learn from the juxtaposition. She left and she remarried. So we learn from the laws of divorce, we learn the laws of marriage. So here again, you see the sequence. First, the Torah says, she left, <laughs> she divorced, and then she remarries. Oh, he. No, the Torah is speaking about her. And then she remarries. Why does the Torah speak about marriage after the divorce? That there's divorce and then there's marriage, remarriage. As if marriage is a, is a, is solves a problem. There, you have a problem with divorce, and marriage is there to solve that problem. Why don't we talk about marriage initially, before there's a problem? Why are we associating teshuva with marriage? What is the meaning of teshuva? Teshuva means literally repentance. Repentance? It means if you, you know, you did something wrong and you regret it, then you change, you change your ways. That's teshuva. I feel like, I think that when a woman divorces a man, I think it's a, a, a growing experience to, for both parties, actually, to see what part they didn't play. So maybe, so if there is a second marriage, they can improve on themselves to make the second marriage work. Yeah. Okay. But there's something to say about the first marriage. Hopefully there won't be a second marriage. Here it seems we're saying that this is the way marriage is, that there is a second marriage, there's a remarriage. Not to the same person. Sometimes. You could. You're allowed to. Only, only if there was no marriage in between. If she remarried a, a, a second person, then she cannot not go back to her husband. If there was no marriage in between to anyone else, then she could remarry a first husband. As a matter of fact, What's the model of marriage? The model of marriage is the Jewish people and God. God is the husband, and the Jewish people are his, his, his spouse, his bride. That's why God is always referred to in the Torah as he. Not because the Torah was written by men, but because God is the groom, and the Jewish people are his bride. And we have the same situation. Because now we're in exile, it appears to be that God divorced us. And then he's going to remarry us. So we have in the ultimate marriage, as a matter of fact, the Talmud says that Rabbi Yochanan teaches, Rabbi Yochanan teaches in the, in the tractate Yuma that repentance overrides a prohibition in the Torah. The Torah says that if the wife, after the divorce, goes and has relations, marries a stranger, a third party, then she's 
forever prohibited from remarrying her first husband. And here, the Jewish people were unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful. They worshipped false idols, false ideals, false, false idealism. And yet, with the power of Teshuvah, God takes us back and remarries us. So that's the power of Teshuvah. So we're talking about the ultimate role model of marriages, of all marriages, is the marriage of the Jewish people and God. What is the reality of that marriage? It's basically a remarriage. That's our present state. It's a remarriage. We're in exile. Supposedly, externally, it appears to be as if, as if you know, God kicked us out of his home. And, and through repentance is going to be a remarriage. So why, why is this the setup for marriage? I mean, isn't the ideal is there should be one marriage, the only marriage? Why, when we discuss marriage, the Talmud and the, the verse in the Torah and the ultimate role model of marriage, the Jewish people and God, it seems like the main part of marriage is the remarriage, not the first marriage. First marriage didn't last too long. It's the remarriage, which will be forever, Mashiach through Teshuvah. And the truth is that if you go back to the origin, the beginning, where it all began, it says that Adam, Adam was in paradise. And then, and then he was expelled from paradise. The language that the Torah uses is the same language that the Torah uses for divorce. He was sent out from paradise. And this is really the key. This is really the answer. That the truth is marriage, marriage is a response to a, a problem. What is the problem? And this is the problem that we all face. And this is epitomized by Adam and Chab. Adam and Chava were in paradise, they were innocent, they were pure. They were childlike. They were like children. Unselfconscious. Pure innocent. Running around the birthday suit. Like little children, unselfconscious, unself-aware, no ego. Pure, innocent. There's no, um, you know, there's no sense of anything negative. Everything is pure. Everything is unconditional love. There's no... It's paradise. Children can't tell lies. They're not even capable of telling lies. They're lie detectors. An adult that hates children can smile at them. A politician that hates children can pick them up and smile to them. The child will burst out crying. Children, children are lie detectors. You can't fool them for a moment. Because their whole being, their essence is truthful. And so you have to be especially careful not to lie to children. Because their whole being is genuine and truthful. And... How long does that last? From Purim to Shushan Purim. Last a moment and a half. Right? Then we quickly grow up. We tell our first lie. We become self-aware. We become self-conscious. And automatically we're expelled from the Garden of Eden. We lose our innocence. It'll never be the same. There's no going back. You can't pretend. Once you become self-aware, you become self-conscious, you become egotistical, then you're ashamed. And then you realize that there's shame. You realize how you can abuse something so special, something so holy, like sexuality, and abuse it and reduce it to meaninglessness and nothingness and skin deep. 
something that's completely superficial, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, and therefore you cover yourself up. That's the idea of modesty, to try to preserve the sanctity of sexuality, not to abuse it and not to reduce it to meaninglessness and nothingness, to realize it's the deepest and most precious thing that we have. And in order to nurture that sense of sexuality, you have to have modesty. It's only when you have modesty that you're able to access that sense of intimacy, that sense of... So it's only through modesty that you can preserve that preciousness, that, that access to your soul, to the intimate part of, of sexuality. Otherwise, sexuality just becomes skin deep and it actually... Eroticism destroys the ability to be intimate. Versus modesty nurtures your ability to be intimate with yourself and with your loved ones. So this is the idea of shame, of modesty, and that comes as, as a result of self-awareness. They grew up. They became self-aware. They became egotistical. So that's the problem, because when a person is egotistical, you know, it's very difficult to create a real relationship. Because it's all about me, myself, and I. The more self-absorbed you are, the more arrogant, the more egotistical you are, it becomes impossible to really connect with another person. Ego divides, separates. And what is marriage? Marriage is an attempt to go back to the Garden of Eden. Not only figuratively, but also spiritually, also, also literally. Husband and wife go back to the Garden of Eden, literally. But it's a reflection of, it's a reflection of also what, what's going on on a deeper level, that they create an environment, a home, where they feel unconditional love towards each other, they protect each other, they're there for each other. They feel at home inside and out. And they create a lasting relationship. So in marriage, you basically recreate, deliberately and consciously, you recreate and recapture that childlike innocence. There's no going back. You'll never be a child again. There's no childishness. But you recapture that childlike innocence. There's one place in the world where you feel at home. One place in the world which is not a marketplace transaction. Everything outside of your home is a marketplace transaction. It's a business deal. I'm giving you something, I'm getting something in return. What can you do for me? And I'll do something for you, and it's mutual. That's business. A home is the exception. This is one place in the world. It's not a marketplace. It's not, there's no, it's not a transaction. It's, your purpose in life is to take care of this one individual, to create that home, to give them their unconditional love. And you do it as an adult. You deliberately and consciously create this environment because you're in a position to do it because you're an adult. Children, you can love a child unconditionally. Children evoke unconditional love. Children are pure. It doesn't matter if they're black or they're red or they're white or yellow. It doesn't matter. A child just evokes a tenderness. Children are pure. But children can only receive. Children can't give. They're not in a position to give. Here, only adults are in a position to give. So when you deliberately and consciously choose to marry and choose to take care of this one person and to give them that unconditional love, to give them that, that safety and that security, and the husband does it to the wife and the wife gives it to the husband, then you're, what you're doing is you've taken ego 
which is the source of all friction, the source of all human misery. Right? If people had no egos, psychologists and psychiatrists would be out of business. 99.9, right, David? 99.9% of the human condition would be completely healed, human problems. Because it all comes from jealousy and from envy and from hatred and from conflict and from tension and from... So, here what you've done is you've taken the source of all friction, the source of all conflict, and you completely transformed it. You're using that ego to act as an adult, to deliberately and consciously give and create that space and to create that home and to give that unconditional love to your spouse. So yes, marriage, going back to the inception, the beginning, marriage is a response to a problem. The problem is called ego, the source of all human misery. Now, there's no going back. Once you lost your innocence, you can't become a child again. You can't pretend to be a child. It doesn't work. But the answer is not to become a child again. The answer is to get married. The answer is to completely harness and utilize this potential for the negativity and completely turn it around where that becomes the source of creating this, this home. We, we, we go back to the Garden of Eden, but you go back as adults. And then you have the best of both worlds. You're an adult. And once you've chosen and you've learned to learn and to do it deliberately and consciously, then it's forever. It lasts forever. So Adam was in the Garden of Eden for a few moments. It didn't last. The Jewish people, when they stood at Mount Sinai, the first marriage, were innocent for a few moments. It didn't last. Forty days later, they lost it. But the ultimate marriage, the marriage of Mashiach, this will be forever. Because we, we will have learned how to harness, how to utilize ego, which is the source of all negativity, to completely turn it around. So in the deepest sense, marriage is every marriage, hopefully the first and only marriage. But marriage in general, in a deeper sense, is really an answer to a problem. The ultimate answer to the ultimate problem which is ego. So that's why the Torah sets out, the Torah says, the whole idea of marriage is like a remarriage. In other words, you have a problem, there's a divorce, something that gets in the way of marriage, and you overcome it. Get in, and then kiddushin. First she leaves, and then she goes, she gets married. The Jewish people are divorced, and then they remarry. Hashem. Through Teshuvah. So this is the idea why Teshuvah, the theme of Teshuvah, is very much connected to the idea of marriage. The difference between a tzaddik and a baltruva, a tzaddik is innocent. A tzaddik is born pure, innocent, he's not exposed to any negativity. A tzaddik is, in a sense, like a child. The baltruva is like an adult. He lost his innocence. And there's no pretending. There's no going back. You can't pretend it. You lost your innocence. You blew it. You messed up. You're self-conscious. You're ego. You told your first lie. You were expelled from the Garden of Eden. But the, the adult does the shuva. And that's why the place of the baltruva is much greater than the place of the tzaddik. And we see that. The tzaddik the high priest which represents the tzaddik is not allowed 
into the Holy of Holies. The only time of the year the high priest allowed into the Holy of Holies, once a year on Yom Kippur. With the power of Teshuvah, Teshuvah propels him into the innermost chamber, into the Holy of Holies. And that's the difference between Pesach, which we're just coming from, the holiday of Pesach, which is the center of holidays, the first of the holidays, and Tishrei, which is the end of the holidays. Pesach, we become like children again. The whole highlight of the Seder, we become innocent. We get rid of every drop of chametz, every drop of ego. We get rid of ego. There's no ego, innocence, purity. We all become childlike again. We all, you know, become curious again. And we're pure. Pesach is a preparation for the giving of the first set of tablets, when the Jews were pure and innocent. Tishrei represents Yom Kippur, when Hashem forgave the Jews for the breaking of the tablets, when they blew it and they repented. And Hashem accepted their repentance. Tishrei, the name Tishrei, the letters Tishrei, are spelled backwards. Tuf, Shin, Resh. The ordinary sequence is Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalet, Resh, Shin, Tuf. Tishrei is backwards. Tuf, Shin, Resh. Tishrei represents the Baal that has to find his way back to God. He has to find his way back to that purity and innocence. But Tishrei is the climax of all the holidays. The joy of Sukkot is greater, more intense than the joy of Pesach or the joy of Shavuos. Because the Baal is so much deeper, so much greater, because Tishrei is about the adult. The adult who blew it and yet reconnects, finds his way back. So in a deeper sense, marriage, as it's reflected, especially in the holiday of Sukkot, which is all about the marriage of the Jewish people and God, especially Simchas Torah, which is the consummation of the marriage of the Jewish people and God. This represents the adult, the reconnecting, after there's been a break, after there's been a severing of the relationship, like a divorce, the breaking of the shattering of the tablets, and then you reconnect. And they say a marriage is only as good as its first real fight, right? You know, it's when everything is hunky-dory and everything is smooth and everything is beautiful. Uh, that's not the test of a real relationship. The test of a real relationship is when there's a real challenge to that relationship, a serious challenge to that relationship. And then you go deeper and you discover a new depth, a new strata of love, and you learn to, you rediscover a new love. Like you, you see your spouse in a whole new light and you rediscover why you, f- you fall in love with them again. And on a much deeper level. And that wipes away and cleanses away all hard feelings and all negativity that has been built up between, between the two of you. So, so in the deepest sense, marriage is really overcoming a problem. As it is, marriage is two opposites. We're constantly finding each other and reconnecting each other. Marriage is not supposed to be like a brother-sister relationship. Brother-sister relationship is calm. There's never supposed to be any turmoil, any turbulence. 40 years, 50 years can go by and it's calm and smooth. And that's the way it should be. But marriage is two opposites finding each other. It's fiery. It's, 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 it's waxes and it wanes. It's, it's, it's right. It goes distancing and re- reunion. Distancing and reunion. Every month you experience that. The husband and wife separate and then there's a reunion. She goes to the mikveh and there's a reunion. That's the dynamic of marriage. It's, it's overcoming. It's overcoming a separation, overcoming a gap, overcoming and discovering a deeper unity. So, in a sense, it's like teshuva. Teshuva means there's been a separation. There's a problem. And you have to overcome that problem by discovering a deeper unity, a deeper level. 
So, in, so this explains why teshuva is really associated with marriage. Because marriage is like teshuva. Teshuva is like marriage. And uh, it is overcoming a problem, an inherent problem. Because husband and wife, God created man and woman as one. And then he separated the two. So you have these opposites. That's why there's such a fierce attraction. Opposites attract. Because you're looking for your other half. Half of you is missing. So there's a fierce attraction. And only when husband and wife come together do they become whole, they become one. So marriage, in, in essence, is overcoming. That separation and reuniting and connecting and discovering a deeper unity that overcomes the superficial differences between, you know, masculine and feminine. So, Alter Rebbe himself called it the letter of Teshuvah. The second part of Tanya he called the gateway to unity, and this he calls a letter. It's interesting that he gave the name a letter. There is a letter of Teshuvah of Rabbeinu Yoyna, of Gerondi, he named his Shari Shuva. Why did Alter Rebbe call this part of the Tanya the letter of Teshuva? So there are many explanations, and one of the explanations is just like a letter. You write a letter when someone is long distance, at least in the olden days, before you had IMs and Skype, and people wrote. They wrote letters. Someone was long distance, he wrote a letter. A letter is someone, some, someone, something you write to someone who's very far. And this is what Alter Rebbe is telling us allegorically. It's a very powerful image. Alter Rebbe says he's writing a letter. A letter of Teshuvah. Because the letter of Teshuvah is written to a Jew who's very far. Who's alienated from his Jewishness. Who, who feels, doesn't feel, can't connect. He's so distant. Al-Tarevi is writing him a letter. A letter can reach very far. Teshuvah can reach a Jew. Even a Jew so alienated, who's so distant, who's so far, who chose to be distant, who deliberately chose to be distant, and alienated himself from his own family, from his own soul, his own connection. And this is a letter that's written, that could reach very far. Even a Jew so far, so far away, so far blundered, so lost. And the letter will find him. The post, this post service is very reliable. <laughs> this letter <laughs> knows how to reach its customer. No matter where you're hiding out, no matter how far you are at the other end of the world, this letter will find you. And hopefully with lessons in Tanya.com, this letter will be able to find every Jew in the world. Okay, so, page 1001. This is the third part of the Tanya. It's a continuation of the theme of the Tanya. Tanya, Alter Rebbe begins at the first part, is to show us how the Torah and the mitzvot are very dear and near to each and every Jew. Alter Rebbe adopts the interpretation that the verse is referring to, the mitzvot, that for a Jew to fulfill all 613 mitzvot is something that's very near and dear to you, as Rashi interprets. But Nachmanides interprets the verse that it's referring to the mitzvah, specifically to the mitzvah of Teshuvah. Moshe is telling the Jewish people that to, to fulfill the mitzvah of Teshuvah is something that's very near and dear to you. So the Alter Rebbe is going to explain how this concept of Teshuvah, the mitzvah of Teshuvah, is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. 
you know, in, in the Torah we have different, um, different interpretations, different levels of learning. We have the Musr of Torah. Musr teaches you right from wrong, and it's the part of the Torah that offers us a little rebuke or how to be honest and to work in our personality and our character. Then there's the part of the Torah which is called Hakira, the philosophy of the Torah. The philosophy, understanding the idea of God and our relationship with God. Then you have the revealed part of the Torah, the Talmud, the learning, and then you have the halacha, the practical. Each part of the Tanya corresponds to a different part, different approach to the Torah. The first part of the Tanya corresponds to the Musa. It teaches you how to live, teaches you how to see yourself honestly and how to work on yourself and to change you know, self-work self that's the first part of the Tanya first part second part of the Tanya corresponds to the philosophy of Judaism it teaches in a very profound way it teaches you the Jewish understanding of godliness there's no other reality but God the unity of God the only, only thing that exists is God and it explains it in a very clear coherent way that makes sense. We can internalize and integrate and understand, comprehend. So that corresponds to the philosophy of the Torah. The third part of the Talmud corresponds to the Talmud, the learning, the scholarly part of the Torah. And as we'll see in this chapter, in this opening chapter, there's very profound scholarship in every single word of the revealed part of the Torah that you'll find in every single word in this chapter, it's, it's profound, it's amazing. Alter Rebbe is teaching us so much and clarifying the concept of teshuva, the, the scholarly understanding of what is teshuva and what it means from a Talmudic point of view. And then the fourth part of the Tanya, the, the letters, the holy letters, which gives us the practical halacha. You should give tzedakah, and you should, uh, based on everything that you've learned, how it translates into practical application. Okay, so Alter Rebbe begins... Just like he began with the first part of the Tanya, he began with Tanya, the word Tanya, so too, the Rebbe begins chapter 1 with Tanya. Tanya is a brais. Even though this is not universally, this is not universally, this is the um, prevalent edition that we have. But the Alter Rebbe chooses this version, that it's a standalone Tanya, it's a standalone Braisa, because this coincides with the theme of the whole Tanya. And for the reasons why the Alter Rebbe called it Tanya, like we already learned, you can find it on LessonsInTanya.com in chapter 1, right at the beginning, why it was called Tanya. Even though there also, it's not either, the prevalent version is not either. It's a Tanya. It's actually, the prevalent version is that it's an Amira. Nevertheless, the Alter Rebbe chooses the non-prevalent version specifically in calling it Tanya. The reasons that we discussed there, I don't think it's necessary to repeat it. But the Alter Rebbe says, Tanya we learned. We learned in the Brais. He's quoting a passage of the Talmud. The Talmud says, Tanya we learned at the end of Yuma the end of the last Mishnah in Tracted Yuma, which is a tractate that deals with Yom Kippur and the tractate that deals with Teshuvah, repentance. 
So at, at, uh, on the Talmud, at the end, on the last Mishnah, the Mishnah is written by the first rabbis of the Talmud, the early rabbis. And um, what was incorporated in the Mishnah is called Tanan. And what was not incorporated in the Mishnah, written by Rabbi Huda the Prince, is called Tanya. It's called a Brisa. That's That was left out. It wasn't incorporated in the major body of the Tanya, but it's the authors are the same rabbis who wrote the Mishnah. These are the early rabbis who transmitted the Torah, the oral tradition from generation to generation. So Tanya, we learned in Abraisa, at the end of the tract, that Yuma, that there are three types of atonement. And repentance is necessary for each and every one of them. Al-Tarebi skips over the whole entire Braisa. The Braisa actually begins, says Rabbi Masya ben Kharash. One of the Tanoim, his name is Rabbi Masya, the son of Kharash, who headed the yeshiva in Rome, in Rome, in Italy. This was after the destruction of the temple, second temple. And he inquired in Rome, he inquired of his colleague, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. He says, perhaps you heard of the four ways of atonement that our teacher, Rabbi Shmuel, taught. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah responds, I did not hear of four, I only heard of three. Rabbi Shmuel says there's three different types of atonements. What are the three different types of atonements? He says, if a person failed to fulfill a positive commandment, you didn't light a Shabbos candle. You forgot to put on film. You forgot to read the Shema one morning. Then, if he repents, he's forgiven immediately. And the Talmud brings a verse to support that. Because it says in the verse, Shuvu Bonim Shevavim. Hashem says, Return my wild ch- children, my, wild, my rebellious sons. And at, on the spot, the moment you do Teshuvah, you repent, Hashem forgives you. What if a person violated a prohibition, a negative commandment? In other words, he did an act, a negative act, an act of commission. In the first case, he, didn't, he did nothing. He did not fulfill an obligation. He was supposed to do something positive, and he didn't. He sat and did nothing. In that case, the moment you repent, you forgive but what if you go ahead and you do an act of commission? You go ahead and sin. You do something wrong. In that case, if you do teshuvah, if you repent, repentance alone is not enough. But you need Yom Kippur to complete the forgiveness. You have to live through a Yom Kippur. You have to repent. And together with the repentance, only when Yom Kippur comes along, then Yom Kippur has the power to bring about forgiveness. Also, on a very simple level, on Yom Kippur, Jew is very inspired. You know, when a person sins, Jewish guilt kicks in, you immediately regret it, you feel sorry, you feel bad. So that's the shuvah, you feel bad, you're sorry that you did something wrong, you're ashamed of yourself, you're embarrassed, you're sorry, you regret it. But you can't compare it to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, every Jew is inspired. 
So you, as you review and you go through the sins, it bothers you. The power of Yom Kippur, the holiness of Yom Kippur gets to you. And your regret is much deeper. Your regret it is, is much more genuine and much more sincere and much deeper. And then the Brisa continues, and if a person committed a sin which comes with a death penalty, death sentence, a serious sin, capital crime, whether a death sentence by Jewish court or a death sentence by the hands of heaven, a more serious sin, a prohibition that's also equivalent to a more serious sin is the prohibition of swearing falsely. Swearing falsely has the same, carries the same weight as a sin that comes with a death sentence. That's how serious it is. That's how careful you have to be not to swear falsely. You know, people swear on their mother and their father and they swear up and down the block 20 times a day as if it means nothing. But swearing is so strict, so severe, it's right there, the third of the Ten Commandments. Right after God says, I am God, your God, and don't, thou shalt not worship idols, God says, don't swear falsely. And that's why we start Yom Kippur. The first thing we start Yom Kippur is Kol Nidre, making sure that we didn't abuse, we didn't take an oath and not fulfill it. That's how strict and severe it is to swear falsely. Exactly. If you say, I promise, is that the same as I swear? Well, technically, swearing is if you use God's name. If you use God's name and you swear in God's name, then that's the equivalent of a sin that comes with a death sentence. But the importance of keeping your word, when you say a promise, a promise is a promise. That's why when you do a good deed, we always say, without making a promise. I don't want a promise. Because if you do a good deed and you don't make a condition that it's without a promise, that becomes a commitment, and then you're obligated to fulfill that commitment. So you have to be very careful. The Jews are very careful with how we speak and what... what not only what enters into our mouth, but also what leaves our mouth. So, if a person committed a sin, a strict sin, a sin that comes with a death penalty, then teshuva is not enough. You need teshuva. You need Yom Kippur. And then you need suffering. It's only suffering that causes a cleanliness, that cleanses a person of a sin completes the, the cleansing. Also on a simple level, as much regret as you feel, you know, when you sin, you feel guilty, you regret, you feel regret, as much regret as you feel even on Yom Kippur, you know, your, your soul is stirred up and you, you, you really take it to heart. But unfortunately, when tragedy hits home and you're suffering, then the regret that you feel is so much deeper, so much more profound. Then you wake up and say, oh, was it worth the fun I had? The momentary pleasure I thought I had? It wasn't worth it. Look at the price I'm paying. It's not worth it. So your regret is much deeper and much more genuine. And that regret is enough to wipe away that sin. The sin of a, stri- of a serious sin. And then the Brisa continues. What if a person desecrates God's name? He not only sinned, but a sin is one thing if you sin between you and God. But a sin where you desecrate God's name. Where you cause others to look lightly. People will say, ah, there goes a religious Jew. Look what he did. 
instead of saying, there goes a religious Jew, and look what a beautiful person he is, and look what an intelligent person, look what a kind person, look what, I wish I went to yeshiva, this is what happens when you act in a godly way, look what a special person you are. Instead, they look at him and say, look how, what a disgusting, look how he's behaving in such a disgusting way, and, and therefore you make a chil Hashem, you desecrate God's name. For that, tshuva is not enough, Yom Kippur is not enough. Pain and suffering is not enough. The only thing that could atone for it is death. Some say on a simple level, when a person is dying, that hits home more than anything. And then you really regret. That breaks through anything that's clogged, anything that's blocking you. You know, sometimes we're just blocked. We just can't grow. We can't move. We're just so paralyzed. We're so twisted and twisted out of shape that we... We lost our way. We don't know how to go back home. But the fright of death is enough to break through anything. And it's enough to wake you up and to come home again, to reconnect with that innocence, that purity, that childlike innocence that we were all born with. And it's still there, deep down. It's dormant. It's there. So that can break through and that can cause an atonement for anything, even for the desecration of Hashem. Now, do you count three or do you count four? Now someone says there's three types of people. Those who know what to count and those who don't. What's this argument in Ramasi of Mecharer and Allah Zabin Azariah? says there's four ways of atonement. Allah Zabin Azariah says, no, I only heard three. If you sinned a sin of omission, you did not fulfill an obligation. You just sat on your hands and did nothing. Shuva helps. That's one. Two, if you did a sin of commission, you violated the prohibition, then teshuva together with Yom Kippur. Three, if you sinned a sin that's a capital crime that comes with a death sentence, either in the hands of heaven or in the hands of court, and then teshuva and Yom Kippur, and then you need pain and suffering to achieve a cleansing, and four, if you sin with a chil Hashem, if you cause the desecration of God's name, then you need not only teshuv, and you need Yom Kippur, and you need pain and suffering, you also need death. And that's a separate discussion. Does it mean you have to have all four? What if a person dies before, before Yom Kippur? Or he died suddenly, he had no pain and suffering. Does it mean only when he goes through teshuva, and then Yom Kippur, and then pain and suffering... And then death, only then does he achieve an atonement. That's a separate discussion. But how many do we have? Four. So why does Rabbi Elizabeth Isaiah say there's only three? So Rashi says, Rabbi Elizabeth Isaiah is telling, saying that there are three distinctions. Teshuva, you need to repent. Teshuva, you need with each and every case. So teshuva is not part of these distinctions. In each and every case, you need teshuva. He's saying there's three distinctions where you need one. You need something unique that will conclude the atonement. So in the case, according to Rashi, what are the three? The case where you, dis, where, you, where you violated a transgression, then you need Yom Kippur, 
to conclude the atonement. In a case where you violated a sin that comes with a capital crime, the capital crime then you need pain and suffering to conclude the atonement. In a case where you desecrated Hashem's name, then you need death to achieve the atonement. That's how Rashi learns. That the shuva is not counted as one of these distinctions because shuva goes with everything. Others learn differently. And the Alter Rebbe does not bring down Rashi's interpretation, it brings down another interpretation because Alter Rebbe doesn't even mention the desecration of God's name. He just mentions the three distinctions. What are the three distinctions? Three distinctions are if you violated the sin of omission, you did not fulfill an obligation, then Teshuvah alone helps. The second distinction is if you did a sin of commission, you violated the prohibition, then you need Yom Kippur. And the third sin is, if you did a sin, a severe sin, a, a sin that comes with a, with a capital punishment, then you need also pain and suffering. Why do these commentaries, why don't they accept the Rashi's interpretation? After all, you have a fourth distinction. If you desecrate God's name, why do they ignore that? Why does Rabbi Lezim and Azariah say there's only three? And the answer is because the mitzvah of teshuvah is a mitzvah on a living person. That a living person has an obligation to achieve an atonement. It's true. Once a person dies, your soul also needs an atonement. Because your soul cannot rest unless your soul is cleansed. But that has nothing to do with the mitzvah of teshuvah. The mitzvah of teshuvah, like all other mitzvot, are obligations on a living human being. So according to Abulazah ben Azariah, when we discuss the different atonements of the mitzvah of teshuvah, we're discussing the mitzvah, the obligation on a living human being. So he says that, that the soul needs an atonement after death. And the soul achieves an atonement after death. Because when they desecrate Hashem's name, after they die, the ego comes to an end. They're, they're forgotten. So their, their, their negativity, negative energy that they left in this world will also be forgotten with them. And it's, and, and it's, but that's an atonement for the soul after death. Here we're talking about the mitzvah of teshuvah, the obligation that a living person has to achieve an atonement. To wipe away your sin, to cleanse yourself of sin. That obligation, that only applies when the person is alive. So we can't, we can't be talking about a sin that, that we desecrate God's name. Because that you can't achieve atonement while you're alive. So therefore, we must be talking about the first three distinctions. We achieve an atonement. If you, if you violated the positive mitzvah, you violated the negative mitzvah, you violated the strict mitzvah, a severe mitzvah, a severe prohibition. And that's why the Alter Rebbe chooses this version of the Bryce. Because Alter Rebbe is talking about the mitzvah of Teshuvah, the obligation on the person. And part of that obligation is that a person has to achieve a cleansing. Because when you sin, you create a scar. You do damage. You've created a scar in your own soul. 
You create a scar in heaven. You touch the divine. You affect the divine. You create a scar in the divine name, in the divine attributes. That's the power that we have. The whole world is in our hands. And even though we may feel as if we're insignificant, but the fact is that we are extremely significant. And everything that we do, positive and negative, has tremendous, tremendous implications. What we do here and now affects the whole entire universe. It's like the sundial. When the sundial moves a drop, you know the sun moved millions of miles in heaven. So the slightest thing that we do in this world has such an impact, such an effect. So part of the mitzvah of Teshuvah is we also have an obligation to clean up the mess, to clean house, restore our soul to health, and restore the universe to health, and restore the divine. So therefore, according to Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, we're talking about the mitzvah of Teshuvah, we're talking about the obligations on a living person. The atonement that the soul achieves after death, that has nothing to do with the mitzvah of Teshuvah. That has to do with the soul should rest in peace and the soul should be at rest. But that's not the mitzvah. When you die, you're no longer obligated by mitzvah. Here we're talking about the obligations on a living person. Now, the Alter Rebbe interrupts the Braise before he continues with a question. According to what we just learned in the Braise that he quotes, which is stricter? Which is more important? Which is more significant? A positive commandment or a prohibition? How do you see that in what we just learned? Prohibition. A prohibition. Why? You have to do double. Oh, double exactly. Make it up. Prohibition, you have to work harder to make up. If you violate a sin of omission, you didn't do a positive obligation, okay, you do tshuva, and on the spot you're forgiven. But if you, vi- you did a sin of commission, you violated an, an avera sin, then tshuva is not enough. You have to wait till Yom Kippur to be forgiven. So it would seem that a prohibition is much more significant than a positive myth. Well, how, does, how do you reconcile that with the fact that the Torah says, what if you have a conflict between a positive mitzvah and a prohibition? Which takes precedence? The positive. It says in the Torah, you're not allowed to cut off the signs of a mitzvah. The Torah says you're not allowed to cut off the, uh, the signs of a leper until it naturally heals. What if you have a sign of a leper in the place of a bris? And the only way you can make a bris, you can make a bris, you're going to cut off the sign of the leper. The Torah says the bris comes first. The mitzvah, the positive mitzvah takes precedent. It says in the Torah that you have to have blue, the tzitzis. One of the strings has to be blue, a wool string, dyed, dyed blue, with a special fish. We don't have it today. Therefore, our tzitzis are white. Now, what if you're wearing, biblically, you're only obligated to wear tzitzis on clothes that are either wool or linen. 
So if you have a, a dress or clothes that, that's linen, and if you add the wool, you're violating the prohibition of you're not allowed to mix wool and linen. Shatnes. And yet, the, what does the Torah say? Instill, in, 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 put in the wool, the blue string of wool. Because the positive mitzvah of tzitzes overrides the prohibition of thou shalt not mix wool and linen. So the assay always pushes off the laces. So what do we see from this? Which is more significant? The positive. So which one is it? That's what you're doing in mitzvah, but if you're going, you're going doing an avera, then, I mean... Okay. Yeah, but we see when the Torah places a priority. So what the Torah is telling us, uh, it's giving a value statement that um, positive mitzvah is much more significant. It's much more significant. So much so that you have to push off, even though you're doing a sin. Positive mitzvah takes precedent, and therefore the Torah says you have to do the mitzvah. So you see the Torah is placing a value that positive mitzvah is so significant, so important, that it pushes off even a prohibition. It overrides a prohibition. And go ahead and do it. And here it seems that the Torah is saying that the mitzvah is very light. You, did a, you didn't do a mitzvah, no big deal. Do tshuva, and on the spot you'll be forgiven. No big deal. But if you, if you did a sin, oy, 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 oy. tshuva is not going to help. You need Yom Kippur. And... The Torah seems to be saying that a, a sin is much more significant, is much stricter. How do you reconcile these two? What's the logic behind it? Which one, is, which one weighs more? Which one carries more weight? If a positive mitzvah carries more weight, then I should need a, strict, a stricter tshuva. Are you kidding? I did not do a mitzvah. I lost the mitzvah. You know how important the mitzvah is? A mitzvah is so important that it even overrides a prohibition. And here the Torah says, you didn't do a mitzvah, no big deal. You did tshuva and it's, it's, it's on the spot you forgive. Two different contexts. Okay. Explain. One, the positive mitzvah um, overrides the negative. It's like the candle that lights the darkness. And whereas you have fun, that's when you're raising yourself. The other thing is, the other way is bringing yourself down or hurting somebody else. I'm sure you could put it more eloquently. Okay, so you're saying it's two different contexts. Okay. We have a bunch of lawyers here. Let's see, how, how would you, how would you uh, define it, articulate it? I always defer to the doctor. <laughs> so let me uh, try to articulate it just a little. There's no question that a mitzvah is much weightier, a positive mitzvah than the prohibition. So much so that the positive mitzvah overrides the prohibition. And that is the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation, God created a person to be active. The reason why when a person sins, a sin of omission, does not fulfill a mitzvah, you're forgiven instantly the moment you do Teshuvah. It's not because a mitzvah is light. No. Because the truth is, for the sin of the mitzvah, for not doing a mitzvah, there is no atonement. The sin is so severe that there is no atonement. 
Not only Tshuva doesn't help, Yom Kippur doesn't either help. As the Talmud says, what is What is a crookedness, a sin that you can't fix? If you didn't say the Shema, you missed the Shema, that's it, you, you blew it, you missed it, there's nothing you can do. The rest of your life, you can, from now on, the rest of your life, you can be careful and read the Shema every morning and every night. There's no going back. The bottom line is, you did not do this mitzvah. For that omission, you missed it. There's nothing we can do. You just weren't there. You just, did, you just weren't there. It's like you missed school. You just weren't there. You never learned the subject. But you regret it. You can regret it from today till tomorrow. The bottom line is, you just don't have it. Whatever reason, you just weren't there. You just don't have it. In order to have the mitzvah, you have to do the mitzvah. If you didn't do the mitzvah, let's say a person was forced. He couldn't do the mitzvah. No one will say it's as if, it's as if you've done the mitzvah. The bottom line is, you didn't do it. It was your fault. It wasn't your fault. You don't have it. To do a mitzvah, when you do a mitzvah, you draw down godliness into this world. It could, that could only happen when you fulfill the mitzvah, when you actually do the mitzvah. If you don't do the mitzvah, you don't have it. There's nothing you can do. So a mitzvah is so important, so significant, that if you miss the mitzvah, you've lost it. There's nothing you can do. Yom Kippur won't help you. There's nothing you can What are you doing to Shuvah? The tshuva that we're talking about here is not to replace the mitzvah. That tshuva doesn't help. You didn't do it. So you regret it. But the bottom line is you didn't do it. You missed the boat. You're not on the boat. You're not on the plane. You missed it. You missed the train. You're not there. It doesn't help. You can re- regret from today till tomorrow. You missed it. You blew it. What is the idea of tshuva? The idea of tshuva is when a person sins, there's two parts to that sin. There is one part of the sin that affects the person. A Jew, we're soldiers in God's army. We're Hashem's servant. When a Jew sins, you basically throw off from yourself, you throw off the yoke of heaven. I'm not obligated. I'm a free person. I can do as I please. I don't take orders. So you become a wall. You ran away. You're a deserter. You deserted God's army. You don't take orders. I'm a free person. I don't obey. I don't listen. There's no authority. I'll do as I please and do as I wish. Then, there's another aspect. When a person sins, you do damage. You create a scar. You do harm. You affect your soul. You affect the soul of the universe. You affect the divine. You affect other people. So teshuva, there are two parts to teshuva. One part is teshuva is you regret. And you say, God, I'm sorry. I was a vildechayah. I acted wildly. I deserted. I acted recklessly and irresponsible. And now I want to come home. I regret it. And I'm yours again. I want to reconnect. I want to come back home. Please take me in. I'm yours. I'm your faithful and loyal servant. Then there's another aspect of the show. You messed up. You got to clean house. You got to undo the damage. 
So when a person does a sin of omission, what have you done? Did it create a scar? No, you didn't do anything. I did nothing. I sat on my hands and did nothing. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And for that, there's no fix. Even Yom Kippur won't help. Yom Kippur, pain, death, there's nothing you can do. You didn't do the mitzvah. You blew it. Finish. You lost that opportunity. You'll never have that opportunity. But you need to do teshuva because you threw off the yoke of heaven. You ran away. You deserted Hashem. You want to reconnect with Hashem. So for that, teshuva helps. And that you can do instantly. That on the spot, the moment you do tshuva and you turn to Hashem and you cry out, say, Hashem, I'm sorry, I regret it. I'm yours. I want to come back. Please accept me back. The moment you do that, Hashem says, on the spot, you're back. When it comes, however, to a sin of commission, you did a sin. You did an act, a negative act. You created a scar. You did damage. You tore apart. You destroyed. You hurt. You maimed. You harmed. You're wounded. Now this, this, you have to heal. This, you have to heal. Just, I do tshuva and I'm a soldier again. It's very nice. But now you have to undo all that damage. And to undo all the damage, tshuva alone is not enough. You need the power of Yom Kippur to be able to cleanse and to undo all that damage. So the reason why tshuva is helped so quickly is not because a positive mitzvah is so meaningless, is so light. On the contrary. A positive mitzvah is so strict, is so important, is so weighty. Because that is our whole purpose of creation, to draw God and to bring godliness into this world, which we only achieve through acts, through acts of, of mitzvah, that if you, if you didn't do the mitzvah, there's no, there's no mending. Through ordinary teshuvah, you can't fix it. Could I cite this example that keeps bugging me, and, and I just want to see what everybody's opinion is. An extreme example that we're talking about is the, the commandment that we're supposed to observe the Sabbath. We can't break the Sabbath, okay? Um, but yet, let's say someone's dying, and we know we can save them, and we choose to save their life. We're allowed to break the Sabbath. We must. So we must. So we don't have to do teshuva and be sorry that we broke the Sabbath. You would have to do teshuva if you don't break the Sabbath. Exactly. So in that case, that's a case of a positive mitzvah overcomes saving life, takes precedence over anything. Then, you, then, you're not, then there's no sin involved. There's nothing negative. When the Torah says that a positive mitzvah overrides a prohibition, there's no sin involved. The Torah is telling you, go ahead and do it. So there's nothing negative. You don't have to do tshuva. It's not like a case, some cases where the Torah says, for example, if a person has a very disturbing dream on Shabbos. So you're allowed to fast on Shabbos. Usually you're not allowed to fast on Shabbos. But if you had a very disturbing dream, you know, it's like a, a premonition, something bad is going to happen. So you're allowed to fast, but then you have to fast after Shabbos to make up for the fact that you fasted on Shabbos. When the Torah says a positive mitzvah overrides a negative prohibition, you don't have to do tshuva later for, over, for, for violating the prohibition of cutting the, the leprosy, the signs of leprosy, or for wearing a shatnes, woolen together. No, you're not doing any sin. There's no negative energy. You're not creating any damage. The Torah is telling you to do the mitzvah, so there's no negativity associated with it. Torah says it overrides. Because that's how primary doing a mitzvah is. 
we were created to do. We were created to accomplish. Our mission and goal in life is to accomplish. Now, a person could say to himself, you know, to live is to live dangerously. Because when you live, inevitably you're going to mess up. Just by the fact that we're alive, no matter what you do, we're human, we're going to mess up. So let me just vegetate, let me just hide, and I won't live, and therefore I'll play it safe. Like someone said, Shabbos. Shabbos has so many prohibitions, let me just sit at home. I'll lock myself in my room, and like this, I won't violate. But then you've already violated. Because Shabbos is a day of pleasure, a day of rest, a day of pleasure. Locking yourself up in the room, you violated the whole Shabbos. God created us to act. We live in the world of action. The purpose of life is to act, to create, to do. That's our purpose. And inevitably, the Torah says, yes, you will mess up. There's no tzaddik, there's no one who's perfect in this world. And when you mess up, you'll do trivial, you'll repent, you'll, you'll, you'll fix it. But the option is not to opt out of life and to, to, you know, not to participate in life, so to play it safe. That's not an option. The Torah says you have to do. The positive takes precedent over the, ne- over the negative. Our, that's the goal in life is to do. So the active mitzvot are very weighty, are very significant, so much so that they overcome the negative. However, if a person sinned and didn't do a mitzvah, so the fact that you lost the opportunity to lose the mitzvah, that you lost forever. There's nothing you can do. Even Yom Kippur can't help you. It's so, it's so important, the chance that you lost to bring Hashem into this world, you lost it, you blew it, that's it. Nothing you can do. But what you could do is do, do tshuva on, on your personal level. That here you went a while, you ran away, you deserted, and here you want to come back. You want to reconnect, you want to come back home. And that tshuva helps instantly. However, with a sin of commission, when you actively do something wrong, you did an action that's wrong, you created a scar, you created a negative energy into the, into the universe, in your soul. You maimed and wounded yourself. You harmed yourself and harmed the whole universe. You damaged. That you have to heal. That you have to fix. Just doing teshuva and expressing your regret and saying you want to come home and reconnect, it's not enough. Now you have to clean up your mess. And for that, you need the help of Yom Kippur. And if it's a real strict sin, then you need the help of pain and suffering also to finalize that cleansing process. And if it's a real terrible desecration of Hashem's name, the ultimate, the worst, then, then, then only death can achieve the ultimate atonement. Because death is an atonement. It's the ego coming to an end. Now, the truth is, there is a possibility to do teshuva. There is a level of teshuva where you could make up for sins of omission, for mitzvot that you lost. But that's a very, very powerful teshuva. That's an unusual, profound teshuva, like we find in the Talmud. Rabbi Lazar ben Derdaya cried until his soul expired. When you reach such a level of teshuva that it shakes you to your very core, it shakes you to your very essence, such a level of teshuva does have the power to make up for mitzvot that you lost. But that's not an ordinary level of teshuva. That's not what the Bryce is talking about. The Bryce is talking about an ordinary level of teshuva. We're not talking about the highest, the deepest levels of teshuva because ultimately there's nothing that stands in the way of teshuva. Ultimately, teshuva can fix anything. Anything. Even when the, even when the Torah says even teshuva doesn't help, teshuva can help that too. There's nothing in the world that can stop teshuva. But it, but it has to be such a profound teshuva 
that's off the charts, that's so extraordinary, so unusual, that's so rare, that has the power, a truva that has such intensity and such depth, such force, that has the power to make up even for lost mitzvah. But that's not, that's not the ordinary, that's very unusual. Here the Bryce is talking about a regular teshuva, a regular run-of-the-mill teshuva. You regret, you're sorry, you turn to Hashem wholeheartedly, sincerely, and say, I'm sorry, please take me back in. And that level of teshuva, that you can't fix the mitzvah. You lost the mitzvah, finish. You'll never make it up. Any questions for... Regarding the negative, what category, Lush and Har, does that fall under the capital, the ultimate? The second category. Even though it says elsewhere that Lush and Har is like um, (coughs) the equivalent of idolatry, adultery, and murder all combined. But, um, right, it falls into the second category. But Lashon Hara is a type of thing where even Yom Kippur doesn't help. Because if you sin between man and man, you have to obtain their forgiveness. God himself can't forgive you. You have to make sure the person you harm, you slander, he has to forgive. And you have to ask it sincerely. At least three times. But only if you act it sincerely. If you're doing it because it says in the Code of Jewish Law you act three times, then it's meaningless. It's not worth the paper it's written on. So... Um, but he has to forgive you if he sees that you're sincere. <coughs> if a person asks, because it says in the Code of Jewish Law, you have to ask forgiveness, but the day after Yom Kippur, you can tell the day after Yom Kippur, you're going to revert back to your old ways, then it's a joke. Then, he, then he'll forgive him the same spirit that he's asking. You don't mean a word you say, and I don't mean a word I say. So you're, asking, you're regretting, and I'm forgiving. It means nothing. It has to be for real. Yom Kippur is genuine, it's reality reality check. The person has to forgive you. So you really have to express your sorry, really ask forgiveness, really be broken hearted. And, and if you're sincere, you try three times, then you know, it's not your responsibility. Then there's nothing more you can do. But, um, so even Yom Kippur can't help. You have to, only the other person could forgive you on that sin. Hashem won't forgive you until the other person forgives you for the sin that you've caused to the other person. So Lashon Horror falls into that category. You harm another person, you slander another person, you can't ruin his life, create a rumor. It reminds me of the story, these two Jews were running for shul president. And one spread a rumor and he says, you know, my competition, his sister converted to Christianity. So the guy comes running to him, he says, how could you spread such a lie, such a slander? I don't even have a sister. <laughs> Okay, go, go, go tell it to everyone. The damage is already done, you know. You start standing on the rooftops. I don't have a sister. It's, it's, the damage is done. To do damage is very easy. People believe the worst. People are ready to believe the worst about anyone immediately. The good is, it takes a lot of convincing. So if you can undo that damage, then, then you have a chance of obtaining forgiveness. But if you don't, then Kippur is not going to help you. Nothing is going to help you. Matter of fact, even when a person dies, you have to go to his grave and ask forgiveness. You have to take a minion, the person you insulted and you harmed, you have to go to his grave, take a, ten Jews with you and ask him to forgive you. Because a person doesn't forgive you. you. You harmed him, you hurt him, you hurt his family, you slandered his name. You know, the damage that we do to others is very serious. And, and nothing could help you. Only thing that could help you is 
the other person will actually forgive you. To be continued next week. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golas, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible. 24-6, to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now, when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.